Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That is Children of the Wind. You probably guessed that that was the title of the song. Um, That was Children of the Wind. It's from the musical Rags. Rags is playing right now at the Good Speed in East Haddam through December 10th. And with me is one of the creators of Rags. Uh, It is the uh, composer, director, lyricist. He's not all those things on Rags, but these are things that he has been. Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz, you know him. You've known him all your life, probably. Uh, You, I mean, I'm not a young man, and I've known him all my life through Godspell, which was when I was in high school, and Pippin right around the time I started college, and then obviously through this incredible string of of wonderful musicals, including, of course, Wicked, and then Disney musicals, and um, things like Enchanted. Um, So uh, it is very exciting to be in the New Haven studios of Yale University. Stephen Schwartz with you. Um, this isn't the first uh, go-round for rags, but this it, it's also not the same rags that has appeared at other times. You're calling it a revisal. What's a revisal? Um, a, a revisal is in contrast to what one would call a, a revival, where basically you put on the show that existed before. Sometimes you do a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of moving things around. But in this case... Uh, all the creators of the show felt that if we were going to try to come up with a version that really worked, uh, we we needed to go back pretty much to the drawing board and um, and just start again and use eventually what um, what worked in the new conception and the new version, but not be tied down to anything. Um, give people kind of a feeling for this story. It's a story of immigrants uh, in the early 20th century told particularly through the story of one particular immigrant, uh, Rebecca Herskovitz, uh, who is a survivor uh, of and fleeing from a pogrom. Well, that's exactly correct. Um, it focuses mostly on um, the experience of Jewish immigrants coming to the country uh, in, in this case, between 1909 and 1911. And the initial impetus for the show was a kind of follow-up to the uh, experiences of the people of Anatevka, 
uh, in Fiddler on the Roof, when they left that village, what happened to them when they came to America. There are no characters in Rags who are carryovers from Fiddler on the Roof, but it's basically that experience. I think Fiddler ends in 1905. This picks up a little bit later, as I say, in 1909. Um, But most of the characters in it are Jewish immigrants. There is one prominent character who is an Italian right. uh, immigrant. And, and, and you know, I mean, uh, another play that it kind of connects to in an odd way um, is, uh, as I'm sure you know, when Jerome Robbins first approached uh, Arthur Lorenz uh, and ultimately Bernstein about West Side Story, it was really East Side Story. It was going to be the Lower East Side. It was going to be about, I think, Irish uh, and, and Jewish um, gangs or rivalries, right? Yes. As, as far as I know, when it was East Side Story, that's exactly what it was. And then they discovered that there was a more, um, for that time, contemporary uh, kind of gang warfare, warfare going on on the on the west side, right where I now live in Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. Well, but so here, so this musical, you you're on Orchard Street or thereabouts at, at various times, um, and, and there are there's huge amounts of discomfort. There's a little boy uh, in the play who discovers pretty quickly that being one block. Uh, out of the way can be very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, you know, it was a dangerous time. There were different neighborhoods, and um, particularly for the newer immigrants, uh, it was dangerous to encounter the immigrants who'd been there a little bit longer. Um, you know, it seems to be a theme that runs through our country and we're certainly dealing with now. Right. There's a sense, we're about to hear this uh, song, uh, Greenhorns, from this. There's sort of a sense that there are all kinds of predatory forces. Uh, I mean, we encounter our protagonists in this play as they're on the boat coming over uh, and getting off the boat. Uh, and, and yes, there are all kinds of sources of predation ranging from those more recently settled groups of immigrants who have maybe, you know, a five, ten-year head start uh, on these. And then there are, is also this other settled class uh, of people who doubtless don't consider themselves Uh, immigrants at all. Uh, We'll hear a little bit from them in this song, Greenhorns. So the one thing I want to say right away, I said it to you when you came in, I really like this musical. And I went on Friday night and I was tired and I was like, ah, drive all the way down to East Haddam. <laughs> I worked all day. And then I got there and I really, uh, there's the Charles Strauss, your collaborator, these very uh, lush and interesting uh, melodies. Uh, the story that you and the, through your lyrics and the book tell it is poignant. Uh, I got verklempt at the end, which is, you know, that's what you want. Exactly. Um, and, and, but this I mean, maybe another reason that I, I wasn't – I went in with the wrong set of expectations is this show um, struggled in its maiden voyage, right? In 1986, uh, you do it on Broadway. And what happens? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a show that we could never really figure out how to get together when we first did it. Um, you know, this happens with shows from time to time. And more often than not, they then get consigned to the, the dust heap of Broadway history as misses or near misses. Um, 
And but over time, I think largely due to Charles's score, because the music is really great. Um, there's been interest in the show. There have been various attempts at revivals, but they were what I would call the rearranging deck chairs school of revival where things get moved around, but it's basically on the same ship that's going down eventually. Um, and uh, yeah, and so it, it was great when Goodspeed approached us and gave us the opportunity really to rethink this. I, I think you know, by that time, we had a number of ideas about what had not worked originally or why the show hadn't come together fully. And then there were two very important new collaborators who joined us. One was the director, Rob Ruggiero, who had a, a very clear concept of how he wanted to approach the show. And then because our, our original book writer, Joseph Stein, had passed away, uh, David Thompson, uh, the writer of, among other shows, The Scottsboro Boys, came in. And he and Rob really came up with a, a fresh approach. And that allowed Charles and me and the others to um, kind of look at the show in a whole new way. So, um, not that you want to dwell in 1986 at all, but it was kind of an interesting, there was an interesting thing that happened on what I think was ultimately the last night of the show. One of your uh, players, uh, Lonnie uh, Price, I think it was, um, came to the stage, I guess to the apron of the stage and said to the audience, meet us outside uh, uh, under the marquee. You want to tell that story? Well, you know, I've heard this story, but I, oh, you but I wasn't actually there. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, they did a little protest march down Broadway in an attempt to keep the show open, though. Of course, that was a, a pretty naive hope. But uh, I think what it indicated was the devotion of the cast themselves and the people who were already aficionados of the show uh, towards it. But I, I have to tell you the truth as an author – I was looking at something that I realized did not yet work. It, it didn't work. I'm, I'll, but I'm wondering also, you were very familiar at that time with success. Um, and by the age of 26, you were this wunderkind uh, and maybe not as familiar with uh, a show that closes after 18 previews and, and four showings. Was that hard? I mean, how did you deal with that? Did you go out and get drunk? Did you go lie down on the floor <laughs> for five days? What would you do? Um, well, I think I was pretty depressed for a while. Um, sure. Uh, but, uh, but what didn't I think I would have felt worse if I had felt that it was unjust. Mm. If I would felt this was a great show and why the hell didn't they get it? Mm -hmm. um, I think all of us knew that structurally we had not really solved the show and there were great things in it that excited such um, devotion. But, but the show itself had not coalesced completely. And, and over the years, because, you know, one continues to learn, I came to some conclusions – as to why that that had been the case, it's you know I was uh, running my eye down the cast list today from that original cast in '86. There's some interesting names there and people that have had ongoing associations with you. Gabrielle Barry, do you say Barry? Barry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gay Barry yeah. was in it. So and he and he's like, didn't he? He created some kind of Stephen Schwartz thing. Yeah, like he a, did a, a very successful review of mine called Magic to Do, which is actually on the Princess Cruise Lines and may find its way onto land because it's been <laughs> so well received. But Gabe's become a very well-respected director. Works at the Goodspeed a lot. At, at Goodspeed a lot. Of course, you know, the cast 
featured, you know, Judy Kuhn before she was as well known as she is now. In fact, as you said, Lonnie Price, um, Terry Mann. It was a very – it wasn't the cast's fault. Let's right. just put it that way. Right. And so a lot of those people – I mean, I think Terry Mann, who's doing a lot of work in Connecticut these days, but – Obviously, became a big Broadway star too. He's been the king in Pippin since then. Yes, right? he yeah. was in the the wonderful Diane Paulus revival of right. Pippin. He played uh, Charlemagne in that. I saw the production of Pippin. In fact, I think I ran into you at the Good Speed, the one that had Mickey Dolenz as the king. Oh you've right, you worked yes. with a monkey. That's true. Yes, <laughs> a monkey with a double E. Right, a monkey with a double E. Um, so um, I want to talk a little bit about the messages in this play. And it does seem as though we're, obviously this play was conceived at another time, but as it's a revisal, so you've had a chance to reconceive it. Um, I don't want to do any uh, spoilers at all. I do want a lot of people listening to go and see this. But so it's very interesting things done with production and art direction and this, at the end, there's kind of a collage uh, of immigrants that kind of drops down in front of the players. It's very beautiful. But I mean, it's hard to miss the message here, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we are living at a time where the show actually is more relevant uh, than it was in the 80s, where the whole issue of immigration was not as controversial and certainly not as much in the news and in the forefront. One of the things that the authors, including myself, discovered when we went back to the show and did some research was how similar the attitude uh, towards immigrants was at this time, um, there was literally a congressman who wanted to build a wall to keep them out. Uh, there were a lot of protests. There were political cartoons um, all about how the culture of America was going to be destroyed by this wave of uh, Eastern European immigrants coming in, that, that America was not going to be the same country after they came in. Um, and, and of course, we're dealing with uh, people who are feeling the same way now. It's interesting that many of those people who are feeling the same way now are, in fact, the grandchildren of these immigrants who others wanted to keep out. But uh, someone once famously said, you know, we live in the United States of amnesia. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it's odd how theater has anticipated this moment. And I'm like, without, without even trying, I, I, you know, right away, there's this show that's up right now, uh, but it was written in the past. Um, Hamilton, uh, a couple of times, they say, you know, immigrants, we get the job done. Um, Hadestown, which uh, I think was conceived of by Anais Mitchell before the Trump run, has a song in it called Why We Build the Wall. Mm-hmm. That It just sounds like it could have been out of a Trump campaign speech. And you sort of wonder about that. Like, why, why would there be such pressions? And I wonder if it's partly because musicals, the, what we call the American musical theater is the work of Jerome Kern and George Gershwin and, uh, and Irving Berlin, that, that you know, the, the, this form was kind of created by people who were either uh, immigrants or immediately the sons and daughters of immigrants. Yeah, well, I think that may be why this particular topic um, has been um, being dealt with uh, always, but certainly contemporarily, um, and and therefore maybe seems a bit ahead of its time. Um, you know, but I think in general, musicals tend to try to deal with things that are in the air and and in the culture. So um, you know, you get shows like um, you know, Fun Home um, coming sort of in the midst of or slightly before 
you know, HB2 in North Carolina. And, um, you know, it's, it's not unusual for musicals, which is odd because they take so long to write. Right. It's not like you look at a headline. It's not like you're doing Law and Order and you look <laughs> at a headline and you think, oh, next week's show could be based on that headline. Musicals take five years at best uh, to create, and yet they do often seem to be right on the cusp of the times. Right. Law and Order can be ripped from today's headlines. Um, today's headlines are ripped from musicals. Uh, the musical already happened, uh, and now reality is kind of catching up. So another thing that you're really plunging into, I mean, the reason this thing is called rags is it's about the garment trade to a certain degree. It's about uh, people trying to make a pretty meager living at first uh, in um, uh, in the equivalent of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, but also just doing stitching out of tiny little apartments, putting dresses together. Um, and so we're going to hear a song called uh, Fabric of America, in which you attempt basically to take the process by which uh, something like that's assembled and, and make it musical. First is the baster. Now, Bella, that's you. Stitch one piece wrong, it's a wreck. Assemble the garment, remembering you are meant to make sure the sleeve ain't the neck. Next is the stitcher who works the machine. Oh, that's me, finally, hurrah! Mr. Hurrah, hey, don't think you're so grand. Just try to see you don't sew through your hand. The baster, the stitcher, together we work. The fabric of America. Um, first of all, I mean, was that, it almost sounds like that might have been a fun song to write. I mean, it was really fun to write. Yeah. Because I didn't really know how, um, (laughs) these things were assembled, how piecework worked. Um, one of the differences in, in the current show is that in fact, a great deal of it takes place in this one tenement apartment, um, where they're, where they basically have a home sweatshop, um, Rob and Tom, when they were uh, – Tom, by the way, is the nickname for David Thompson. Hmm. So I have to remember to call him David mm-hmm. officially. Rob and David, when they were uh, researching the show, went down to the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side. And they actually found an apartment and they thought this is the apartment in which this show should take place. The design of the apartment is based on that. And then we le- did research and learned – what kind of work would be done there and how they would make these uh, these dresses. Uh, this is quite different than uh, the, the, the plot, the story in the original show. But what was nice for me is that actually um, that's the story of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she um, started out, she was in, in the rag trade on the Lower East Side, and she became a dress designer and, and did fairly well. Um, uh, another thing that's happening in the the current version of this play, and as I say, I don't want to do any spoilers, so all I'll say is a character dies uh, at some point in the play. I won't tell you who. Well, uh, you know, all good musicals, somebody's got to die. Well, that's that's actually not the really Rodgers and Hammerstein rule. <laughs> Somebody got to die. <laughs> I could come up with two, with exceptions to that. <laughs> no, of but, course but, there are exceptions. But but, but was, that, was that a decision you made in this iteration, this revival? No, no, no. Or? That was that was always the case. I feel we've made. Um, better, more poignant, and um, more um, appropriate in terms of its centrality to the story. Uh, we've made better use of, of the incident than we, we did originally. Um, 
Yeah. We're talking to Stephen Schwartz right now, by the way, if you're just tuning in. Um, uh, before we go to a break, um, why did you do this? I mean, it's just a lot more work. Um, you got other projects going. We'll be talking about some of those other projects. Uh, you could keep busy. You don't have to go to East Haddam and try to get this play back together again that you've already had experiences with. What was so important to you that you're willing to do this? It seemed like a unique opportunity actually to see if we could solve the problem of this show. Um, a bunch of things came together. The fact that Goodspeed, which is a great place to develop shows, was interested. The fact that um, they were willing to bring in a new book writer uh, and the team, uh, the original team, therefore, was ready really to reexamine the show. Um, it, it just seemed, after all, as I said, these sort of rearranging deck chairs attempts, mm -hmm. it was it, – it seemed – too good an opportunity to pass up. It did make for a rather complicated schedule for me, but but I'm glad I undertook it. Right. And we should be clear, um, this is sort of the Goodspeed's idea, and then they pitched it at Rob Ruggiero, and you guys initially said, nah, I don't think so, right? I mean, you weren't necessarily jumping at the chance to do this. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, just to speak for myself, I, I did turn it down initially because I had seen other attempts to resuscitate rags, and I felt that the show didn't work and there was no point in doing it unless it was really going to be um, revised. Um, but then when Goodspeed was not only um, willing to do that but enthusiastic about doing that, then, you know, we jumped in with both feet. Also, and I have to say this on the air because he's very neurotic uh, about these things. Rob Ruggiero is just a terrific director, and he's done a nice job with this, and he did an incredible job with Next to Normal last year. Uh, which I saw. Yeah. Which well, was you an saw excellent, Yeah, it was, it was an great. excellent production. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I liked the Broadway-scale production, but I liked this better, the very intimate style that, that Rob achieved. was terrific. So, uh, All right, so I said that, Rob, okay. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a little break. Oh, we're going to come back with more Stephen Schwartz. The baster. Now, Bella, that's you. Stitch one piece wrong, it's a wreck. Assemble the garment, remembering you are the Out of the ruins and rubble, out of the smoke, out of our night of struggle. That's 100 Parish singing Beautiful City. I'm here uh, in New Haven with Stephen Schwartz, uh, the man who gave you Godspell, the man who gave you Pippin, the man who gave you Wicked, uh, the magic show, uh, tons of other things. Rags, right now, uh, his creation alongside um, Charles Strauss and some and several different book writers uh, is now, and directed by the great Rob Ruggiero, uh, that's twice, uh, is uh, now <laughs> running at uh, at the Good Speed in East Haddam. I think it's running through December 10th. Get your tickets now. Uh, we'll also talk about some other project, he, projects he's doing. Doing. But so there's a character in Rags, uh, Stephen Schwartz, named Ben, and Ben just knows in his bones he's a songwriter. He just absolutely can feel it. I mean, he barely has access to a piano. He doesn't even know that sheet music can be printed up and, and sold so that you can make money from writing your songs. Um, 
at some point in your life, were you Ben? Did you sort of feel in your bones that you were a songwriter? Well, it was something I always wanted to do um, since I was a, a kid. Uh, I did know that um, people could be professional songwriters because my parents had a friend who was a professional songwriter named George Kleinsinger um, who wrote, among other things, Tubby the Tuba and uh, Ballad for Americans and a couple of other things that uh, back in my childhood were popular recordings. Um, yeah, so it was actually George who recognized in me uh, a musical ability and suggested to my parents maybe they might consider getting me piano lessons. How old were you when that happened? Uh, six years old. Six years old, yeah. wow. And so, I mean, look, uh, we're kind of from the same generation. Um, one possible musical path that was suggested maybe more frequently to most of us, it was something closer to what's on the radio, right? We all want to be rock and roll stars. Maybe you wanted to be Jerry Lee Lewis on the piano. I, I don't know. How did you wind up doing what you do instead of that? No, I didn't actually want to want to be Jerry Lee Lewis. I always wanted to be, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Bach <laughs> and Harnick. Um, and partly it was because uh, George Kleinsinger, whom I just mentioned, was working on a show, um, an adaptation of a successful recording he had done called Archie and Mahidabel. The show was called Shinbone Alley, um, and it had a very brief run on Broadway. Um, it featured it uh, at the time a, a chorus of dancing cats, which was roundly and, and some, ridiculed. And some cockroaches, I assume. Too. Yes, Archie's, there was in yeah. fact yeah. A, a, Archie's a, a cockroach, a singing cockroach, and a chorus of dancing cats, which critics couldn't understand why people would want to come to the theater and see a bunch of cats dancing, um, demonstrating the importance of timing. But um, yeah, when I was, I guess by the time it got to Broadway, I was maybe eight or nine, um, and my parents took me to see it. it was my first Broadway show. And that was really the moment I thought, well, th this is the world I want to live in. This is the thing I want to do. So I didn't become like most of my generation. You know, I, I, I wasn't Paul Simon or James Taylor or Joni Mitchell or whatever. That that sort of singer-songwriter route, aside from the fact that I'm not as good a singer as they are <laughs> also. Um, but but that was never what I was interested in. And and do you remember your first song, the first song that you wrote where you thought, I just wrote a song? I do. I used to do um, little puppet shows at home um, with my sister using stuffed animals and her dolls, and we would make up shows. And I wrote a, a show about a, a dog who ran away from home. It was a you know, deeply tragic event. <laughs> um, and there was a song in it called Little Lullaby that was sung to the dog. Um, whether it was my first song or not, it's the only one from that time that I remember. So, yeah, then I must have been, as I say, around six or seven. Right. So, I mean, skipping vastly ahead, um, Godspell, okay, so Godspell, when I, I graduated from high school in 1972, which means I know a lot of the songs from Godspell. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were on the radio. <laughs> they were, which I was mean, amazing. I know a lot of the songs that weren't on the radio, too. But, um, and, and that seems. You know, for a guy named Stephen Schwartz, n not necessarily the material that I would have, might, one might have expected you to plunge into right away, right? This is sort of a uh, a story that, well, yeah. You well, Godspell began as a gig for me, to be perfectly yeah. obvious. I had um, done uh, an, an early college version of the show that became Pippin when I was at Carnegie Mellon. And when I graduated and came to New York, I was sort of hawking um, – 
Pippin around. I managed to get an agent. She managed to bring me to play for various producers. Among the producers she brought me to were Edgar Lansbury and, let me try and say that more clearly, Edgar Lansbury and Joseph Baru. And um, they were not interested at all in Pippin, but about, oh, six or nine months later, they came across Godspell, mm. oddly enough, also by Carnegie Mellon students, um, which was uh, playing off-off-Broadway at the Cafe La Mama. And they decided maybe this had commercial possibility, but it needed an actual score. Mm. And um, I've always believed that they called every known composer in New York, all of whom <laughs> said no, and they finally in desperation turned to that kid who had that strange musical about Charlemagne. But Edgar swears that I was their first choice. Anyway, they called me. I went to the Cafe La Mama and I saw the show and um, said I'd like to, you know, of course I'd like to write the songs for it. And they said, great, we go into rehearsal in five weeks, go. <laughs> No problem. Um, a lot of American show business, as we knew it, say, in the 1980s, was born in a production of Godspell in Toronto, right? I mean, just so many people uh, that we came to know and love. Well, yeah, I mean, because it was mo- it, it, it was what became basically Second City TV. It mm-hmm. was all these great comedians, um, you know, Marty Short and Andrea Martin and Gene Levy, Gilda Radner, who was not SATV but went on to uh, Saturday Night Live. It, they, it was really our funniest production ever. And also Victor Garber was yeah. the lead. Victor Garber was the lead. And then there was some weird guy named Paul Schaefer. What was he doing? Yes, Paul Schaefer uh, came in to play a couple of auditions for people who were, um, you know, trying to get cast in the show. And I heard him play and immediately stopped him in the hall and said, um, would you be interested in being our musical director? <laughs> and so we hired him to be musical director for the show and then subsequently brought him to New York. And then, you know, he got Saturday Night Live also and went on to very, very well-deserved fame and glory. You know, I, I said that in high school. I mean, I went up learning most of the songs from Godspell because people did. People had the album. It was an album then. Uh, and the, it was a record and we listened to it. Um, but this has happened over and over again to, to, to you with your work. I would say more than people who typically write for the Broadway stage, your music is in the ears of young people. And there's a whole generation of uh, girls between the ages of 10 and 15 or something for whom Wicked was this just incredibly powerful statement, not just a great musical that they liked that had cool songs to sing, but a, a, a musical about what? About not fitting in, about discovering kind of – it's the old Hans Christian Andersen ugly duckling story. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 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 The out, you know, I, I do like to do shows about um, outcasts or people who – consider themselves outcasts and are trying to figure out how to um, exist in the world. And it's just a theme that's always attracted me, and it does seem to be one that resonates for a lot of audiences. Right, and uh, Pippin has that to a certain degree. And like, there's a song like Extraordinary where he's just singing about how bored he is doing anything that he's supposed to be doing, <laughs> which pretty much describes most people's adolescence uh, and, and possibly beyond. But what's it like? I mean, it, I, you know, you can't underestimate the strength of some of this material, how important – not actually. Let's just play also a song from um, Enchanted. All right. This is a, another example of a song that is is very very familiar to uh, a generation uh, of young girls who've just been kind of knocked out by. I mean, not just young girls. I mean, I'm a guy. I like the song. You know? <laughs> I'm not young. Uh, but so anyway, this is a, a little tune from Enchanted. 
Oh, it's um, <laughs> it, it's uh, that's how you know. You got to show You know, Stephen Schwartz, I mean, whether it's this from Enchanted or, I mean, I, you know, I went to see Wicked on Broadway when uh, Chenoweth and, and uh, Adina yeah, Menzel were so. in it. And it's, you see what this is. You know, you see the, what the, I mean, you, there are all these cliches like female empowerment and stuff like that. But it must be kind of exciting for you to see these girls for whom these musicals are, make incredibly powerful but also very much fun statements. Well, sure. I mean, the, the fact that, work that I've done, and obviously it's not just me with my collaborators, has such resonance for people and in some ways um, provides motivation for them in their lives or helps them get over issues that are bothering them. I mean, to be honest, that's not why you write shows, mm-hmm. but when something sort of has that ancillary impact, it's it's you know, nothing is more gratifying for a writer than that. It's not why you write shows, but in the case of Wicked, right, you had this kind of source material, the Gregory, Gregory Maguire thing, right? Yeah. And so, and looking at that, you had to know, well, first of all, this is a counter-narrative. This is, you know, this is Wizard of Oz told from an opposite perspective, from the quote-unquote villainous perspective, um, but obviously somebody who doesn't think of herself at all as a villain. Um, and and you, you probably saw also those elements, those, yes, you're misunderstood, yes, nobody gets you. Yes, you are exploited at times and ridiculed by the more popular people. Um, uh, you must have known at least that those elements were there. Was that well, part of, of what attracted yeah, Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what was attractive about the material in the first place. You know, I basically first heard about Wicked from a friend of mine who was reading the, the novel, the folk singer Holly Near, who mentioned to me in a very casual way, oh, I'm reading this really interesting book, and it's called Wicked, and it's kind of the Oz story from the Wicked Witch's point of view. And from that title and that one sentence, mm-hmm. I immediately knew that that was something that I wanted to do because it was so thematically in my wheelhouse and what and what interests me. And of course, that's part of it, the um, taking a character who is perceived in one way and understood in, in another way and looking at it in from a different point of view of reality. I, I mean, I feel like I tend to do shows and, and, and stories that are like that in many, many instances. Um, let's hear a little bit of the song Popular from Wicked, and then I'll make a kind of interesting point about that. Well, I don't <laughs> know if it'll be interesting or not, but anyway, here's Popular. A point. We have to think of celebrated heads of state or especially great communicators. Did they have brains or knowledge? Don't make me laugh. <laughs> they were popular. Please, it's all about
This is another little Stephen Schwartz lyric that has a peculiar resonance here in 2017. I'll let people connect those dots. One of the ironies of this show is, I mean, not to excite every creator's neurosis over reviews, but boy, if you read the reviews to the show, you wouldn't understand, have any idea what was going to happen, that it was going to become this incredibly dominant force on Broadway. Reviewers seem not to get it. Reviewers have never – I've never been a critic starling. Mm. You know, I've, I have never gotten a good review in the New York Times for any show I've ever done. Um, for whatever reason, the way that I write and the way that I hear things um, is not always in sync with the way um, – the critical community uh, responds to things or analyzes things. And, of course, there was a period of time when that was very um, upsetting and hurtful to me. But, you know, after a while, I just feel like, well, there's nothing I can do about this. I, I can't second guess what I'm doing to try and please the critic for The New York Times. So I basically have to write what, you know, what speaks to me and, and what I believe in and hope enough other people um, find it entertaining or resonant or meaningful that they go and see it. Yeah, well, there is a little bit of having a last laugh here, too. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's a better story, really, that Wicked did what it did. Uh, listen, I, I, sure, but um, I would love to have, you know, shows open and be treated like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda or Stephen Sondheim, um, you know, both of whom are writers I enormously admire. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that that uh, that hasn't happened for me. But but, you know, again, it, it, it can't be something you worry about. I just keep working. You're going to be fine. <laughs> um, so um, while you're working on this, while you're doing this revisal of the show Rags at, at the Goodspeed in East Haddam, you've also got another project, and that's uh, Prince of Egypt, right? Which is Prince of Egypt conceived uh, as uh, as obviously a, an animated movie. Uh, now is maybe going to make a transition to the stage before you get into that, uh, because it's fun playing all these clips here. So let's hear uh, <laughs> uh, When You Believe. This is from uh, Prince of Egypt. In this time of fear, when prayers so often proved in vain, hope seemed like the summer birds to swiftly flown away. Yet now I'm standing here, I'm standing with hearts so full I can't explain, seeking faith and speaking words I never thought I'd say. So the plan now is to rip this thing off the animated screen and throw it up on a stage, right? It is on a stage. It's yeah. on a stage at TheaterWorks in uh, Mountain View, California, which is basically Silicon Valley. Um, earlier I alluded to the fact that rags um, happening at good speed made my schedule a little complicated mm -hmm. because these two shows had their first preview on the same night 3,000 miles apart. So <laughs> I, I, I have been a little bit of a... a, a Airplane yo-yo, right. um, but it's but it's gone very well. It's running there in uh, in in California. It's been quite well received, and uh, you know we'll see where it goes from here. 
When you write for animation on the screen or kind of semi-animation in the case of Enchanted, more live action, but for these things that have this kind of uh, Disney ethos too, do you find that you're writing – is a song just a song whether it's on on Broadway or on a screen or are you writing to a different aesthetic? Well, um, to some extent, a musical theater song is a musical theater song Mm -hmm. and I would differentiate it from – a pop song because musical theater songs are story-driven, character-driven, need to advance something about the um, about the story being told. Um, that being said, it, you know, whether it's in an animated feature or a live-action movie musical or on uh, stage or on television, the job is kind of the same, but there are obviously different considerations with the different media. I mean, Alan Menken, who you're collaborating with, kind of invented this particular style of Disney music. He and Howard Ashman uh, initially collaborating. You guys collaborating now. How, how do you how do you and Alan Menken work? Do you sit in a room at a piano and bark things at each other, or do you, you know, email each other ideas, or what do you do? Um, a bit of both, but we we do tend to be in the room together. Alan lives quite near me, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a good friend of mine. I mean, we we play tennis together, we have <laughs> dinner together, um, and I usually go over to his studio. Um, and we talk about what the assignment is for this specific song. Uh, I like to bring a title if I can because I know that's helpful for um, Alan and for me to jump from. Um, but we do tend to start with music. We, we, we go music first and then the, the lyrics catch up. Do you ever, whether it's with Charles Strauss or Mencken or anybody else, when you're a lyricist as opposed to writing the entirety of the song, do any of your musical ideas bleed into these songs or is there a firewall? Um. There, there's not a firewall because I will say to Alan something like, um, could could the melody go up here or it would be great if there were like some whole note here or something for her to hold a, you know, hold a word out or whatever. But it's it's never more specific than that. I don't sort of elbow him away from the keyboard and say, what if it went like this? Um, and, and I wouldn't presume to do so. I mean, I like Alan's music very much. Obviously, I respond strongly to it. Uh, Charles is an amazing composer. And yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll express my opinion. But the truth is they'll express their opinions about my lyrics as well. And I'll always try to adjust um, if there's something that um, they don't like. And often they make suggestions that I'm happy to incorporate. Do you like writing music? I mean, is it in the moment? I interviewed Kendra and Ebb years ago, and they were doing a show at the Good Speed, actually, called Reviving the Happy Time. Mm. Um, and I was just asking them about times when directors say, you know what? This song is not working. Could you go write another song? And how does that feel? And they said, oh, we love it. We're never happier than when somebody sends us away to go sit in a room uh, at a piano and try to write a song. Is that how it feels for you, or is it is it hard work? Um it's certainly work, but but I enjoy it. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. I'm one of the very few people on earth who gets to make a living and have a vocation that would have been my avocation. I mm. mean, I would have done this for free and as a hobby if it didn't become my profession. Um, you know, I, I do want to say that the cliche of the director saying, this song doesn't work, go and write another one, is is not really what happens. Usually the writers are there mm. saying, um, I don't think the song works. I think we have to take another try right. at it. It's very rare when you, you sort of get sent to your room to, to try and do better. So you don't think Harold Prince threw those two songs out of company until Sondheim wrote Being Alive? I mean, supposedly, 
Um, I would suspect that Steve was the impetus be, behind changing the song, though I still frankly think that Marry Me a Little is a better song than Being Alive, but that's that's me. Yeah, they're both good songs, though. They both are. Happily Ever After in Hell, maybe a little too dark. Um, all right, so we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with more. Steven Schwartz, his musical, his and Charles Strauss's musical, Rags, is up at the good speed. Go get your tickets. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, with help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern, Sarah Bly. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ben Vereen. On tomorrow's show, the beauty and potential danger of Connecticut's over 4,000 dams. And now, back to Colin. So I'm here in uh, the beautiful Yale Studios uh, in New Haven uh, with Stephen Schwartz. They're really nice, aren't they? I mean, they are nice, actually, um, once you figure out where to park. Right. The parking might be a little <laughs> of a challenge. But um, so uh, uh, obviously Rags is what we've been talking about here. We're going to talk a little bit about it uh, at the end of this conversation again. Uh, Rags is playing right now at good speed. Uh, and then you get on a plane and you fly to the Silicon Valley. And you can see Prince of Egypt on stage. And you just keep moving around, <laughs> seeing Stephen Schwartz musicals as they're uh, either revived or revised or, or whatever as we go everywhere. So, you know, if people say to me, who's Stephen Schwartz? I'd say he's a guy who writes, mus- he writes musicals. But of late, or I don't know whether it's of late or not, but at some point you have actually written songs that aren't do not appear in musicals. We're going to hear uh, a little bit uh, of one of those right now. Uh, it's called Dreamscape. Sometimes I pause there on the threshold Afraid to leave my bright, familiar home Sometimes I spend my days running by so quickly I don't see the doors at all Step on through, reluctant pilgrim My fear is all I've got to lose is nothing, nothing but a dreamscape, and the dream is mine to choose. So, um, so this is a, uh, the, the title of this album comes from this song, Reluctant Pil- Pilgrim. This is an album of your songs that aren't not for musicals. Or, That's or are, correct. Or were they just written as songs or the songs that didn't make it into musicals? No, or? no. Virtually all of them were just written as songs. I should point out that the version you played mm-hmm. is not me. It's actually Telly Leon, yeah, Telly Leon, a wonderful singer who was in uh, both Wicked and the revival mm-hmm. of Godspell. Um, some years ago, uh, I have a very good friend named John Bacchino, who I think is a great songwriter. And I was sort of challenging him to consider writing for musical theater. He ultimately did a probably show called The Catered Affair and has done some other musical theater. And he turned the challenge around and said, well, why don't you ever just write songs out of your own experience that that aren't from musicals? And it was something I never really had done. So, um, yeah, I took the challenge and I wound up writing a few songs and then um, people some people heard them and liked them, and I wound up doing actually a couple of albums uh, of these songs, and then people sing them in cabarets or good good 
singers like Telly record them. So that, that's been nice, too. They're just like little stories that aren't connected to musicals. Are there singers that you – I don't know. Is Audra McDonald covered a um – uh, Stephen Schwartz. The the only recording that, or the only song I know of mine that Audra's covered, is a very peculiar sort of version of "Proud Lady" hmm. that she put together. Um, you know, I I admire Audra very much, and uh, you know, I'd love her to do more of my songs. But thus far, that's the one she's done. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you. I want you to talk me out of a point of view. Uh-oh. Uh oh. No, you can do it. So. I look at the stuff that's coming to Broadway soon, and I just want to blow my brains out. Um, really? I mean, there's a Have gym- you seen the band's visit? Everybody says that's fabulous. It's so good. Um, uh, there are things that are there. That, but I was looking at musicals that are coming up. There's going to be a Jimmy Buffett musical. There's going to be a SpongeBob musical. There's going to be a Mean Girls musical. There's going to be a Frozen musical. There's something called Rocktopia that has Mozart, Queen, Journey, Beethoven, Pink Floyd uh, down the road. I hope you're not attached to these projects. There's an Archie's musical. Or no, I'm not attached to any of them. And a Beetlejuice musical that's and I'm thinking, how does Fun Home or anything like or Dear Evan Hansen, how does it even get to Broadway? There's like all this stuff there. But that you just, know what? They yeah. do get to Broadway, and yeah. that's the point. Of course, there are always going to be projects that are commercially driven, mm-hmm. that look safe from the outside. And some of them are safe, and some of them become big hits like Jersey Boys or Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then other jukebox musicals don't become big hits. you know. Um, but in the meantime... Dear Heaven Hansen gets produced and Come From Away gets produced. And, you know, I don't know what you thought of them, but I thought they were both excellent shows. Um, Fun Home gets on. Um, You know, uh, 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 Next to Normal gets on. So, I mean, I I think that's what's encouraging, that there there remains room for really good work, well-written musicals um, that – um, play with the form, maybe advance the form a little bit. If 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 we were only seeing, you know, uh, um, jukebox musicals and things that were sort of pre-sold, I, I would join you in your discouragement. But actually, I feel as if we're not, and and there's more opportunity than ever for new writers who have uh, talent and have something to say. All right. Stephen Schwartz, I mismanaged the, the clock. And so I just want to <laughs> <Uh-oh>. say, um, <laughs> first of all, you must be so excited to have Rags up and running uh, at good speed um, in, in a way that I think gratifies you a lot more than, than ever before. It is so gratifying, you know, to have this show um, now finally doing, at least as it seems from the audience response, doing what we always hoped for it to be, to be funny and entertaining and moving and make people think about things and and be a musical that works. I, I, I really could not be more excited about it. How many it. times have you seen it at Goodspeed? Oh, several times several because times. it's been in previews and, of course, we've been doing work on it. It's, yeah. it's only just been, as we say, frozen. Right. Um, but it's not the musical Frozen. No, not the musical Frozen. The fact that we're not making changes That could be very confusing. It could be. Well, I want to, first of all, thank you for uh, coming down here to New Haven. uh, And uh, thanks to the people at the Yale Studios, too. This was great. Fun to visit here. We're going to go out with the song Rags because, of course, why not? Because we can. Thank you, Colin. It's great to talk to you. Sewing, sewing, ever sewing. Hacks will turn to hacks. It happens bit by bit. Let's admit, Bella, as we sit sewing buttons on rats. Oh, why do I think it's so necessary to clamber onto that stinking?